Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer, engineer, and mixer Bob Power. First of all, there's a new online radio station, and it caters to metal only. Yes, it's called Gimme Radio. Gimme Radio. Even though R&B and hip-hop is the most consumed musical genre right now, and this is just about everywhere, fact of the matter is, metal has the highest loyalty by a wide margin, and that's on Spotify, and that's on just about any platform you can think of. So metal still has a lot of fans, and those fans go out of their way to appreciate the music, to buy product, and to support the music. So, Gimme Radio may be an idea whose time has come. Now, the interesting thing is it's exclusively metal, and it has a number of guest curators, like uh, Dave Mustaine is one, 24-7 as a radio station. The founders come from Google Play, so these are people that kind of know the lay of the land. Uh, It's not just a couple entrepreneurs starting something up. And they have some other interesting aspects, which are different from other online radio, like a live community feed and a bio and background portion so you can read about your favorite artist, a chat so you can chat about your favorite artist or even chat with your favorite artist. Plus, they have an online store. This is probably the genius of the whole thing. Metal fans really love metal and they love metal merch. And they're able to buy it right here when they hear their favorite artist. They'll be able to go to the online store and purchase that. So that actually helps the online radio station, Gimme Radio, stay current, helps them stay solvent. And it looks like it's a good idea whose time has come. So if you're into metal, check it out. Gimme Radio. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. The second edition of my social media promotion for musicians handbook is now available on Amazon, iBooks, Ingram, and a bookstore near you. It's the manual for marketing yourself, your band, and your music online, and covers how to use virtually every important online platform for promotion. Also, if you're interested in my courses, go to bobbyosinskicourses.com. <laughs> Now, here's something interesting. There's a Wikipedia site called The Worst Music of All Time. And I had a good chuckle checking this out. So let me just give you some of these (laughs) very interesting albums and singles that they consider the worst of all time. And I'm not going to name them all, but just some that jump out at me. For instance, Having Fun with Elvis on Stage by... Elvis Presley, 1974. This one is kind of interesting. Metal Machine Music by Lou Reed, 1975. Oh, this one is panned by just about everybody. To the Hard Way by Greg Allman and Woman. (laughs) Woman meaning Cher. As a matter of fact, she hated it so much that she bought the rights to the album back so it would never be re-released. The soundtrack to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah, okay, I agree with that. Various artists. Thank You from Duran Duran, Playing With Fire by Kevin Federline. Remember who he is? That was Britney Spears' first husband. Here's one that kind of surprises me, Chinese Democracy by Guns N' Roses. And finally, (laughs) this is kind of interesting too, Lulu by Lou Reed and Metallica. Yeah, I never quite got that one myself. 
How about songs? Okay, MacArthur Park by Richard Harris. See, now that one I don't agree with. I always thought that was kind of brilliant. Uh, Oblada Oblada by the Beatles. Well, some people like it. Many people don't. You're Having My Baby by Paul Anka. Okay, got to agree with that one, I think. True by Spandau Ballet. Actually, I always thought this was a really well-crafted pop song. Susudio by Phil Collins. Yeah, I think I agree with that one. We Built the City by Starship. Actually, a good friend of mine co-wrote that. Martin Page. Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. Yeah, you got that one right. Achy Breaky Heart, Billy Ray Cyrus. The Thong Song by Cisco. Yep, I agree with that one. Who Let the Dogs Out by Baja Men. My Humps by the Black Eyed Peas. Yep, agree with that one, that's for sure. Rockstar by Nickelback. You just knew that Nickelback could be in here somewhere. Friday by Rebecca Black. I also know the writer of that one as well. And the final one, Chinese Food by Allison Gold. So anyway, if you're interested, just look this up on Wikipedia. <laughs> it says this list of music considered the worst, the worst music of all time. It's pretty interesting. But again, it's just a matter of taste, isn't it? Bob Power is a Grammy Award winning and multi-platinum producer, engineer, composer, arranger, performer, and educator. Bob started his career as a television and advertising composer, working on campaigns for the American Cancer Society, which was an Emmy Award winner, AT&T, Casio, Coca-Cola, Elizabeth Arden, Hardee's, Hertz, Mercedes-Benz, and many more. He was a big part of the second generation of hip-hop, working with the Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, and artists like Erica Badu, and again, many more as a producer, engineer, and mixer. He has two music degrees and is currently a professor at the highly regarded Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. Boy, that's a mouthful. I spoke with him via Skype from a studio in New York. I was reading up on your background, and I saw that when you were younger, you kind of started in the business playing in soul bands, which is so cool. Yeah, yeah. I didn't ever, I mean, that's how everybody started playing in bands, I think. Yeah, but not soul bands. Oh, yeah. I, when I did my undergrad in St. Louis, I, I uh, got into this music conservatory and got, ended up uh, going for a Bachelor of Music and Theory and Composition, not because I was into classical music. I just didn't know what else to do with myself. Um, and I ended up, during that same time, uh, playing in R&B bands and sort of a Chitlin circuit kind of thing around St. Louis. And this was in the... Uh, in the early 70s so it was total superfly time i mean guys with black leather trench coats girls with orange and purple afros uh hot pants uh electric t25s with uh foam dice hanging from the rearview mirror <laughs> it was wild were you the only white guy in the band no it was weird we it, it, it was a little backwards we had a white three-piece rhythm section and a five-guy uh, frontline who were all brothers. So it was really odd. It was really funny. We did a lot of Temptation stuff and, you know, the normal stuff, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, everything, you know, all that. Yeah, but you must have had the feel to be able to do that because they wouldn't have allowed you to keep doing it if you, you couldn't have pulled it off. I guess. I. It's funny. My musicianship is in such a different universe now than it was then. I was just really, I was a hothead young kid you know, thought I was playing well. I have no idea what it was like, but I guess it was okay. The only reason why I bring it up is 
we come from the same era and i did the same thing i played in a band in pennsylvania well lots of bands in pennsylvania and we attempted to do that type of music but it was so white we were so white bread because we're from the sticks of pennsylvania and couldn't possibly pull it off to even sound even close to what it should be and all these years later i certainly know the difference i don't think i did back then Yeah, well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I have no idea how we were, but I, I yeah, we were good enough to gig, you know. Um, so uh, I was really into Chicago blues at that point too. That was sort of the thing that was closest to me. But you know, like everybody, I was in the Allman Brothers, you know, and just sort of everything that was good at that time and guitar based. How did you make the jump into the studio? When I graduated. From undergrad, uh, I moved out to San Francisco because my folks were out there. I sort of didn't know what to do. My folks had just moved out there. Uh, what we thought was temporarily turned out to be a long time. But I, I got a break and I started scoring uh, television there, which I did. Basically, I got my master's and I studied a lot of jazz. And uh, I, this, the television scoring subsidized my jazz career because I certainly wasn't making money doing it. <laughs> um and uh, that was the first time I was in the studio every week, you know, for a period of time. Uh, we had we recorded some stuff in the in the R and B band, uh, and it was interesting. When I think back now, it must have been one of the very very early sixteen track studios in St. Louis. I also, when I got out of school, I made uh, what was a record for me. Um, and it was a track, but it was the first real good engineer I've worked with. And that was in 74. Um, but I think about 72, we, the college got a, uh, like a basement studio with a 3340, a four track task. And, and I remember the first time I walked in the studio, I was probably 19 or 20. And, you know, I saw it was multi-track and you could overdub. And I was like, the light went on and that was sort of everything there. So I scored, uh, anyway, I, I left St. Louis in, in 75, did TV scoring in San Francisco and got my master's from uh, 75 through 82. Had an, this is sorted, but had an acapella jazz sextet uh, along the way that we were fairly successful there. And then in 82, I was 30 and I was like, you got to move to LA or New York. So New York is kind of where I grew up, so I came back here. Um, so that's that's where I really got in the studios. The first time I started engineering for other people was in '85 or so, and I had been working, through, you know, producing vanity records for people, uh, trying to get into jingles and industrials, which started working pretty well. But I was working overnight at a studio because it was the cheapest time, like all of us. And uh, the guy who engineered for me went away on a vacation for a couple of weeks. So the owner said to me, he said, do you want to fill in for him? And it was one of those moments where you kind of say, well, you know, you can't, but you say, uh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. So that was when I first started being a commercial engineer for other people. So that was about 85. Was that one of the things that you took to right away? Or did you feel that you were going to maintain your career as a musician? I had to. I didn't feel I was going to. Number one, I took to it immediately. I'd always been fascinated by the technology, and I was always asking engineers, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? What's that piece of gear? How do you remember all those numbers on those microphones? Yeah. <laughs> Which, 
a really good friend of mine who left us behind uh, a few years ago. Uh, it was the first really good engineer I ever knew. He said, oh, you just use them enough and you know them. So um, engineering uh, and recording kind of satisfied every part of my musical personality. It satisfied the sort of tech geek in me, but it was very much music too. I, I kept playing, you know, I had to survive. So I was, I was engineering uh, I was playing club dates, which uh, they call them casuals out west, you know, tuxedo bands where you might know a person in the band, but the office says, show up here at 7.30. You have to know 8,000 songs and be able to play them in ADC. So I was doing that until the, into the early 90s um, and down to the point where I'd be recording a hip-hop record on Saturday afternoon and my tuxedo and amp and guitar would be in the back of the room and the guys knew I had to leave at six. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a weird confluence of two worlds that definitely don't belong together, but that was my <laughs> life. Um, as anybody knows who's made a living, until you're really lucky at some point, if you are, you just take every cake that comes along. Yeah. If, if you have time in the book and someone says, I need you at blah, 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 you say, what's the devil they tell you? You go, okay, I'll see you there. Well, what was the point where you could let go of that second world as a musician and just spend all of your time in the studio? Around the early 90s, it wasn't so much letting go. It was that I just couldn't. I, there was no time anymore. Um, late 80s, I guess, uh, early 90s, um, I'd also been trying to get into the jingle world here. So what happened was I got very successful at jingles and I was doing big stuff like Mercedes, AT&T, Postal Service, really great national stuff. And I was trying to do that during the day and records at night. And if you know the demands of jingle work, you know, you got to turn stuff around really fast and it was killing me. So finally around 93 or so, I just said, okay, what would you like to do more? I said to myself, and I said, I'd love to do records more. So I just said, then you need to make the same kind of money that you were making doing all those things at the same time. So that was, that was when I really uh, stopped uh, all the musician type of things. You know, I never stopped, though. It's funny. Uh, you know, I still play on records that I produce, and not because I'm better than anybody else. I just know how to get there quicker. Yeah, I'm the same way. I don't have chops anymore, but I know what needs to be done and I know enough to be able to get there. And I know that if I can't get it, then I'll have to bring somebody else in, which is the right. difference between when personally, when I was younger, <laughs> you know, sometimes you don't know about where that point is, but thankfully, uh, you know, you learn. Well, that's a really interesting, um, observation because something I, uh, I talk to my students about, all the time is studio chops versus general chops in, in terms of musicianship. And there's only about a 50% overlap. There's certain things you have to have together in the studio that don't really matter that much when you play live and consistency of time and consistency of tone, you know, uh, uh, your guitar player. Yeah. You know how poorly voiced many guitars are like Strath. Sometimes the B and the G string sound like they're different instruments. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. You know, there's certain things that you need to do for recordings that once you've done it for a long time, you sort of know exactly where to go. Well, the other thing for me is 
The only time I'll do it is if there's nobody else around, we need it done quickly. And you know, one of those things, I never force myself on a record. I mean, it sounds like you're the same thing. You, you'd never do it. Well, you know, yeah, I, I was going to say yeah. that it's like for, for a while when I started doing records, I really went out of my way to not play because I didn't want my I didn't want the records to be about me. I wanted them to be about the artist. Um, yeah, after all, you know, a lot of time, I'm finally to the point where I know what people want from me. I know how to get there and I'm going to do it. And if it's cool and if it's rocking and if it feels good, everybody's happy. And sometimes it doesn't. And then you fix it. What was your big break? Or do you feel that you had one particular break? Um, I had a lot of breaks, man. Uh, I think getting to know the guys in Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul because I happened to be a staff guy at the studio that they came through when they were doing their demos and making the first records. Um, those relationships were very important to me and they sort of put me on the national map. Uh, and those were also the days it doesn't happen anymore because people read liner notes. There were liner notes and people read them. Um, uh, but those, early Tribe Called Quest and Dallas Soul Sessions, particularly Tribe Called Quest, but both those guys are like family to me. And when those records hit, I was all of a sudden, everybody knew my name, um, which again, does not happen that much anymore. Uh, just because there's no names, no one sees the, the backstory anymore. You know, it's interesting you should say that. I never considered that, but you're absolutely right. And with no liner notes, people really don't know who's working on the records and when we we're growing up that was something that when you bought a piece of vinyl when you bought a record i'm sure you're like me the first thing you do you turn it over and you look okay where was this yeah. recorded at who's the producer who's the engineer and after a while you, you knew what they did and you knew where they did it at and you knew what their style was and it was really important i think yeah and when i was a kid you know it was like i looked on the back of the record i had no idea what all those jobs were, but they certainly looked very cool. You know, <laughs> yeah. remixed. They used to call the guy who mixed the record remixed by. Yeah. Um, and I just thought producer, mixer. Oh, wow. That's like, that sounds really cool. And of course you have no idea what goes into it, but I think that the reason, one of the reasons we do what we do is because of how we felt about it from the first time we heard it and felt it and experienced it even though it's irrational and we know a lot better about reality now, I think it still holds over from when you're a kid. That's, you know, I wanted to be a good musician when I was a kid too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know what you mean. Did you have a mentor? I know. And I like to say I learned from everybody I've ever come in contact with. That's something that's very important to me. Um, uh, I had a mentor when I was doing TV score and a guy named Art Juarez, who again left us behind a few years ago. Uh, and Art was a total, total sort of pro professional musician. It was the first time I saw guys who sight read fly shit. Can I say that? Yeah, yeah I sure. guess I can. Um, you know, their tone, their time, they were just completely professional musicians. They could sit pit band and read a showdown. Um, they just, they were good jazz players. The first time I was ever around people on that level. And that taught me a lot about, and to this day, that's still art taught me about the standard of what it means to be a professional musician. Um, obviously when I came to New York and started working in the studios, I saw a bunch of people that, that were on that level. Um, 
But uh, no, and, and this is a funny thing. I have two music degrees, and it's a dirty secret. I laugh about it with my students because I teach, in the course of teaching production, I teach engineering. I've never taken an engineering class in my life. <laughs> um, and I've just been tremendously passionate about it uh, for at least 35 years or so. Uh, even before I was engineering, I was just always really fascinated by the stuff. Um, I, you know, my dad was a television producer and I remember in the late fifties, early sixties, when I was a little kid, there was a pile of junk down in the basement and everybody has stories like this, but there was a wire recorder, not even a tape recorder. Uh, and I remember like pressing record and talking into the microphone at eight or nine years old, like, hello, my name is Bob. And the fact that I could play it back and hear that back just delighted me to no end. And it's really funny. I talk to my students about this too. Uh, I've done a lot of recording, but every time I put up a microphone, I'm sure you're the same way. You record something, you hear it back. It's just as fascinating as the first time you did it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A wire recorder. Wow. You actually saw one and got to yeah. use it. Jeez. Yeah, and it had one of those fluorescent kind of DU meters, you know, with the funny D shape that oh, gets closer yeah. together as there's more level. Yeah. The other thing that 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 that, that makes me uh, cringe when I think about it, if the wire broke, I would simply tie a knot in it <laughs> <laughs> and keep using it. And I cringe. I think about the headphone the same. <laughs> Very cool. I saw something, I forget where it was. I was reading up on your background and I saw where you mentioned that you started in the second generation of hip hop and you distinguished it as when samples began to become a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And that fascinated me because I had never thought of it that way. Were you saying that when you started, it was the sample era right there? Well, yeah, and, and this is one of the things when I when I give lectures outside of NYU, this is one of my set topics that I offer up to people is that the idea of technology influencing art is possibly more operative in the making of records than just about any other art form I know. Videography would not exist if it were not for technology in the first place. But when you think about records and the evolution of record making and the evolution of hip hop with sampling, um, there's such a clear parallel between the complexity of the records and the advancement of sampling and longer sampling times in samplers. For example, you know, when I first started out, usually have the same small loop playing throughout a record. And often that was a DJ with two turntables. I'll never forget the first time I saw that. Guy came in with two turntables. I said, what do you want to do? He says, I'm going to lay out a track. I'm like, okay. And he just had the same record on both sides and kept cutting back and forth between the two ones, playing the same two-bar loop over and over again, absolutely perfectly and absolutely in time. And I was like, holy shit. Um, but with sampling, it was so, the, the sam available sampling time because of the memory was so small at the beginning, you know, as you know, early on, you could sort of have a snare drum and that was it and trigger that um, often manually. But as sampling time increased, the complexity, the construct constructions of those records got progressively more complex. 
Uh, and if you think about the first couple of Tribe Called Quest records and De La Soul, um, you look at those first couple of records and the complexity of the construction via samples perfectly mirrors the, the advancement of sampling technology and having more and more sampling time available. For example, early on, if there was a loop and we only had three quarter second sampling time, you'd sample, if it was a one bar loop, you'd sample, boom, boom, get and lay that down back to tape, and then you sample the second half of the bar, and lay that down to tape, and you know jockey it back and forth until it went, so it was incredibly primitive at that point. But then you look at, uh, especially the low-end theory, the second Trap Call Quest record, the complexity of the constructions that they did, and it's not deconstruction, I call it reconstruction, because they deconstructed records and then reconstructed them in their own way. And part of the brilliance of Ali and Tip and, and, and the guys in Dela and Prince Paul and a lot of uh, the large professor, uh, Pete Rock, um, a lot of pretty brilliant people, is they can sort of hear, you'll play them a record and you'll listen to the record in a certain way and they're kind of deconstructing it already in their heads and often putting it back together in a completely different way. It's fascinating. I've never had experience with that, but it does sound that way. Again, whenever you meet somebody that's listening to things in a different way, I always find it totally instructive because it, mm-hmm. it takes mm-hmm. you out of what you're used to. If you can communicate what's going on, I think that's the big part of mm-hmm. it. But it sounds like you, you got that early on. Yeah, and and it's very important. I mean, it's sort of something I learned via jazz is that there's no bad notes. There's only bad resolutions, you know, and that, that's kind of true. Yeah. Uh, and you have to stay open and you can't rely on the things you said, I did it this way the last time. So it's going to work this time. And, you know, that's my, uh, philosophy about music. As much as we need consistency in the studio part, I see, I, I say this in your player, C9 is never exactly the same twice. You know, if you're a funk musician, you play the C9 millions of times in your life. But if you're really paying attention and really keeping your ears open, music is always moving. It's a moving target. I get asked, and this is a slightly different thing, but it's kind of the same concept. People ask me often, oh my God, your kick drums sound so good. How do you mic your kick drums or how do you cue your kick drums? It's like every song is a different universe and a different person yeah um and and i think that leaving yourself open to other people and how they hear things is important you know it was an issue in hip-hop in the beginning and uh the studio establishment at that point and still is to a certain degree was a white male boys club and a lot of new york engineers for example they'd been uh, there were black and white people together in the studio for a long time in New York, LA, you know, there was that certain time where there were certain people who were really pivotal in making that happen in the early sixties. But, uh, in New York, people were used to it. And, but it was a jazz ethic. It was, hey man, what's up? Hey, what's happening? You know, that whole sort of fifties kind of thing. And then when hip hop came along, it was kids who walked in, they dressed really differently. They talked really differently. And in many cases they walked differently. And I think, I won't say it was unconscious racism, but I think that a lot of the engineering establishment, the studio establishment in New York, 
was not scared, but just sort of put off by it because he didn't understand it. And for me, I'm a people person, you know, and these people came in and they were kids half my age and they were really nice and really fun to be around and not knuckleheads and not every druggers or drinkers. So I was like, okay. And then they said, this is what we want to do. And I was like, wow. So the, the, the creative problem solving part of me took over at that point, which I think most of us who are studio people are like that. You know, the quickest way to get a lot of studio cats to do something is to say, I don't think we can do this. Yeah, right. And, <laughs> you know, and they get to work. So that combined with the primitive nature of MIDI at that point, incredibly primitive, uh, was such a huge challenge that I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Let's make this work and let's, let's try to make it happen so it's as musical as hiring the best musicians you know to sit down and play. So, yeah, that was uh, staying open was really important in that respect. Okay, let's get a little geeky. So how much do you do in the box these days? Uh, almost all. Um, you know, I believe in recording it in such a way that you get it in and it sounds pretty damn good. So that means more than good microphones, it means good mic preamps, number one. And anybody who does this will say the same thing. You know, good mic preamp in a 57, I could make a record on a desert island. Um, but mics, mic preamps, get it in there sounding right. Uh, all my mixing has been without any analog inserts for at least eight, nine years. I haven't worked on a console in years, and I actually don't really care to. Uh, for the longest time, uh, my two bus was analog. I have a really great analog two bus chain that I still use for mastering because that's one thing that really you can't do right if you just stay in the box. But my, my two bus is, uh, a pair of Dave Hill Titan compressors, which are amazing. And it's the last piece of analog. I didn't, I said, you can't buy these, but they sounded so amazing. Uh, a pendulum. Uh, ES8, which is sort of like a high five Fairchild, API 2500, GML EQ, a couple of tube tech EQs, a Prism Masselec EQ, which I use mostly for mastering. So that's my, that's my two bus. Uh, until about a year ago, I felt like I wasn't able to get the same kind of results by staying in the box. Uh, I have to say with the new edition of Pro Tools and the way it handles audio internally, combined with the UA plugins and just plugins being better in general. Uh, I've done mixes in the box and gone through my two bus, uh, my analog two bus for clients and they're hard pressed to say which one is better. No, I, I agree with that. Uh, how about you? I'm completely in the box. I felt for a long time that I could do it as well if I stayed in the box. And at some point it was to my detriment, but I kept on trying and trying and I feel pretty confident with it now. And there's enough people that I know, like you, who also feel that way to kind of verify <laughs> what I was thinking, which is always kind of nice. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I took it on as a challenge. About 10 years ago, I just started thinking, you've done the other thing for a long time and you're pretty good at it. You should be better at this other thing. Not because of commerce, not out of fear. It turned out to be a good move, but, you know, um, I just thought the technology's there. Why not? Um, and really, it's been in the last year and a half or so, and again, it has to do with the audio architecture in Pro Tools, the way it handles audio, uh, and plugins are better. So I think we can do it now. It's not even a stretch. It's sort of the way things are done. Do you have some favorite plugins that you find you're using on every mix? 
you know, um, McDSP EQs have been my go-to for, for years. Uh, I also use fab filter stuff now, which as you know, sound real good and the user interface is fantastic. Yeah. Sound toy stuff. I love, uh, and the, the UA line is fantastic. Um, as you know, uh, I, I actually approach digital mixing exactly in the same way I used to approach analog mixing where I know the sonic characters of different plugins. So I can actually go to them, particularly with compression, which is sort of the last frontier, the hardest thing to get right in the box. You know, EQ was not bad from the beginning, uh, but compression was the X factor. And I now know the sort of characteristics of my main go-to EQs. And again, with DSP and, and, uh, uh, filter, uh, I know the sonic character of those, so I go to those immediately. And as you know, there's so many problem solvers that you can use in the box that you never could do in the analog world, multi-cam compression. You know, and yeah. again, used poorly, it's the quickest way to turn something into music. Used well, it can solve a lot of problems. You mentioned before about mastering and doing your own mastering. That's unusual, and usually it's not something that would be recommended, but you've seem to have found a way around that. Yeah, it's better when I master on, you know, I can do a better job. I can make things, I can elevate things more when I master other people's stuff. I do a lot of outside mastering now. At first I said, oh, you can't master your own stuff. But then, you know, I was really tired of my clients getting treated like second-class citizens because they weren't, you know, big label, big name jobs. And these are... You know, a lot of mastering engineers are great people and they're really good friends and incredibly talented and they've been doing this for a long time. But when you work at the big mastering houses, unless you're a really big name, you don't get treated like a really big name. And that was really my, my impetus to start was to do better for my clients, not do better mastering because I was better at mastering engineer, but treat them better. Uh, and as with anything, you know, there's a learning curve and I wasn't terrible to begin with, but over the years I've gotten a lot better and mastering my own stuff now is actually not that weird or difficult for me. Uh, it, you know, mastering also taught me another thing and there's a reason why people like me get paid for mixing. There's a lot of very good and good mixers around. There's not a lot of really great mixers around. I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying this is something I learned where I get stuff. And it was really good. You know, it was really well mixed. And you listen to it. And then you sort of get into the nuts and bolts and start mastering. And as you probably know, start doing that. And you'll become, no matter how good a mixer you are, you'll become a much, much, much better mixer very quickly because you realize what, fatal mistakes you shouldn't do yeah there's a lot to compare to there's great mixes and and there's really you know marginal mixes that you're comparing to and being able to reference it it all comes down to reference points really when it's all said and done if you have a good reference point when you start you can really go a lot faster in, in this business and it's the same thing with mastering you do it enough and you have a reference point what's great and what isn't right right and part of it's trusting your monitors and knowing your tools um, you know, another thing about that though, is you realize like I was a good mixer when I started max mastering. I'm not, I, you know, I'm over like trying to be, I mean, I'm humble, you know, I fuck up as much as anybody, but I, I kind of know what I'm doing with that. Um, 
when I started mastering, especially mastering other people's stuff, very quickly I saw, oh, these are mistakes you should not make when you mix because that'll mess people up. And it made me realize that on a lot of my early records and records that people love and people say, oh my God, that stuff sounds so good. I made a lot of mistakes as a mixer and I know exactly what they are. And you know that um, it's very tough when everything's correct except for one thing. You know, because it's in mastering, actually, I'm not really good at giving up. (laughs) So, you know, how to fix that one thing without collateral damage on a lot of other things is probably the hardest thing. So, you know, I I tell my students that the quickest thing I learned was make sure you don't have one thing that is tonally out of line with everything else. If everything in the mix is dark, fine. If everything in the mix is bright, not so good, but doable. everything in the mix is dark except one thing is perfect, you're fucked. Because then when you try to open up everything else, and those early Tribe Called Quest records, I feel like I made that mistake. I feel like the vocals, especially Tip's vocals on my mixes, were just right, just perfect. But when we had to open up the track in mastering, it made his vocals too bright. And, you know, I feel that when I listen to it now. Do you master on the same set of monitors? Yes, uh, I do. I'm like really either stupid or lucky uh i really trust my monitoring i've been mixing on genelec s30c's for more than 20 years more than 25 years probably and they're they sound nothing like modern genelecs they're three-way ribbon tweeter incredibly uncomplimentary they sound like a flat piece of paper they're not exciting in the least uh once i started mastering i got a sub and I have it on a foot switch, so I click it in and out as I need to check the, the real low end, particularly when you turn it up. You know, having a sub, having your sub set properly is, is really, really key. Uh, in a way, I don't know how you feel, but in a way, I feel like at low volumes, you shouldn't even know the sub is on. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of people make a mistake where, they, it's either too loud or not loud enough. And anyway, I'm lucky I've sort of fine-tuned my system over years, so I know exactly what's coming out. And I have to say, my master's, I, I, no one has come back to me uh, a year later or anything, so that's been, that's been real cool. Um, again, three, you know, I know mastering engineers have these incredible, expensive tower speakers, you know, real fancy. I really know my speakers really, really well. And there's a lot of mid-range information. And it's not that I know how the stuff will translate. They're so uncolored that any anomalies that are played elsewhere are anomalies in those systems, not in what I gave them. Um, Also, you know, another thing I'm mastering and something I've started thinking about a lot lately is you try to remove the possibility of it sounding not good in a in any possible environment, which, as you know, is next to impossible. But when I was doing TV music, I was talking about mixes with an engineer. He said, well, an engineer, uh, a good mix is something that doesn't sound too terrible anywhere. (laughs) And I kind of take that to mastering where you try to take away the possibilities of it not sounding good in different scenarios because of those anomalies. Now, that being said, do you listen on earbuds or computer speakers or anything like that? Yeah, it's funny. I used to hate it, but I can really, 
if I listen on my laptop through the internal speakers, I can tell if the mid-range and upper mid-range is right. You know, if, if a mastering and a mix, for that matter, is good, it'll seem to emanate from not from the box itself, but somewhere out in front of it. The same thing about a good mix and a good master. It should seem like it's coming out, you know, six inches to a foot in front of the speakers, not back in the speakers. Uh, so I can kind of tell that on a laptop sometimes too. How long have you been teaching at NYU? About 10 years. I was an adjunct for a long time, and they made me a professor a couple of years ago. And uh, I joke and say it must have talked to my mother, but it's a great gig. <laughs> it's really, uh, it's it's wonderful to be in an arena where the only reason I'm there is to help people. That is the only reason for me being there. And it's so, at this point in my life, you know, I got lots of props. I don't need that. Uh it's nice to be able to help other people. So it's great. Plus the people I work with, uh, to a person, everybody in my department is is terrifyingly competent and really amazingly motivated. So it's, it's a great scenario. Really good people up there. We're very, uh, intent about doing the right thing for the students. And in in this day and age, you know, with the nature of the business and stuff, it's really important that, you do that you know i feel like i'm teaching people to ride a dinosaur that said half the emphasis in the department is on entrepreneurship so you're not a singer you're not a performer you're not an engineer you're not a producer you are a producer entrepreneur you are a artist entrepreneur so that's important i think oh god that certainly is that's one of my pet peeves with schools that have and everyone has it now that that have recording programs they come from the wrong point of view where it's like well you take this program and then you get a job no not in the music business in the music business everybody makes their own job you have to look at it from the standpoint of being an entrepreneur and if you don't you're going to be severely disappointed and probably working in another career yeah yeah i i totally agree i think schools that that just teach, I'm not going to name names, but schools that just teach people engineering, I think it's a terrible lie to tell people. One of the things that I found interesting, you mentioned before about you had a a mentor in television music or jingles that taught you about professionalism. And that's, I think, one of the most important things. And I could tell from what you described about the courses that you teach, that's certainly a big part of it. But again, that's so lacking in most other programs because they usually don't have someone that has the breadth of experience or even knows what that is themselves. So in a way, they're really doing their students a disservice. I suppose it's better than having no program at all. But on the other hand, going to someplace like where you're at and, and your colleagues that have that experience and know the difference is so important to really doing something, you know, for your career. Yeah, and, you know, I had the feeling that we were doing pretty well, but it turns out statistically around 65% of our graduates are working in the entertainment industry, Wow, which is amazing. And we're not a trade school, you yeah. know, yeah. by any means. We're a liberal arts university. Um, but uh, even though we give a fine arts degree in the department, but uh, that says something about the adaptability and the sort of big head as, reference to big ears, meaning big eyes, you know, they can see the 
the intent and the possibilities in a lot of different scenarios. So they're not all in the record business, but there many of them are, and and 65% are working in the entertainment business overall, which is really a miracle. You know, some people are in licensing, some publishing, uh, just all over the map. But it's great. It's really rewarding to see that. That's really impressive, definitely. Last question, Bob. This is a little off the track, but something you're uniquely qualified to answer. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you received from somebody or you learned along the way? I learned along the way that you will be successful because your clients know that you will go to the wall for them and you will work twice as hard as they will. You know, it's much better. And, you know, you say, well, I don't want to get taken advantage of or I should make more money. Well, you have to suss out the situation. But whether you're getting paid a nickel or $2 million, you need to make sure that everybody understands that you will work twice as hard as they will and that you really have their best interests at heart and not your own. Um, yeah, and there's some places you get taken advantage of, but there are many more places where people will appreciate that and want to have you around. To find out more about Bob, go to bobpower.com, Bob, B-O-B, power, P-O-W-E-R, one word, bobpower.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find an iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.